Jesus, thank you so much for everything that you do for us. You're so so amazing, so phenomenal, so awesome. Words can't describe you, what you do, who you are, but we will keep on trying because we owe you our very lives. We love you, Lord. I pray that as we, we study through this book of Esther tonight, that we would see things we've never seen, hear things we've never heard, and that we would know you better by the time it's all over. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Yes, amen. So, um, Arush, could you throw that timeline up for Josh? I'm sorry. If you haven't been coming on Wednesday nights for the last, wow, a long time, May, I think, starting in May uh, or April, we started going through characters of the Bible. And we started at the very beginning with um, Abraham, the call of Abraham right here. You see, you see that up here on this side. And then we preached through the, the period of the patriarchs. We talked about the Exodus. Uh, we talked about Israel asking for a king and what that looked like skip back to the period of judges. We talked about that. Um, and now we're over here at the very end. All the kingdoms have fallen because they did, the people didn't serve God and everything he said would happen happened if they didn't do that. So now the people are in exile. So Pastor Daniel so awesomely preached on Daniel. Um, and Daniel was in exile. He was in Babylon. He served several kings, and he did amazing things for God in exile. And now we're kind of in this post-exilic time, okay? Um, let me catch you up to where we are. If you like numbers, I'm going to give you some numbers because I love history. So about 539 B.C., Babylon has fallen and the Medo-Persians have taken control of the known world. Does, everybody, does anybody know about the writing on the wall? You've heard that story in the Bible. There's a king of Babylon who's giving a, a party, and he's drinking wine, and he's having basically, um, oh, can you say orgy? I don't, I said it. He's having, he's having, a, or basically, that's what it says. He's having this horrible, sorry, dad. Um, but I don't know what else to say, and I couldn't think of another word. He is, mess, basically, he's defiling God's stuff. He's drinking wine out of God's gold gob. Even Nebuchadnezzar didn't do that. He wasn't that stupid. And so in the middle of his party, a finger, the Bible says, appears like a, a finger of a man and starts to write on the wall. And it writes something, uh, many, many tickle, parson, something like that. I can't remember. And no one can read it. And Daniel is still alive at this time. He's an old man by now. And he comes in and he says, oh, your days are numbered. Matter of fact, you're going to die tonight. And so he dies, and the very night that the handwriting's on the wall, the Medo-Persians come in and they take over. Babylon is gone. It is no longer the main uh, kingdom of the world. So God uses one of those first Persian kings named Cyrus to send some of the Jewish exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild and restart their lives. So we've actually kind of started out of order. You heard Nehemiah last week, uh, but Nehemiah would have actually come after Esther chronologically, and Ezra would have been before Esther, which you'll probably hear about Esther next week. Um, so some of the Jews have gone back, and they're starting to rebuild. The first thing they rebuild is the temple, and that's Ezra, which you'll hear about next week. Um, but in between Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a story of Esther in the middle there. So about 505 B.C., and I keep saying about because scholars and theologians do the best that they can, but, but they didn't have the Internet Okay, they didn't have the things that we have. So, so some of it's a little foggy, but they tried to put it together. They say at about 505 B.C., Esther is born 
in exile, okay? So she would have been born in Persia. This would have been the only home she knew. So fast forward about 19 to 25 years because she was between that age period when this book, Esther, begins in the Bible. The Persian king on the throne is Ashurus. I did that YouTube thing. Have you ever done that when you want to know how to say something? You YouTube it. But anyway, I'm not going to say it again. I'm probably going to say Xerxes for the rest of the time. But it's, I'll say it again. Ashurus is the king, and the Greeks called him Xerxes. Okay, so that's what we're, how, what we're going to call him. Um, and he's the king at the time. And, it, and I already told you about the chronological order, but I had that as a note. So here's some facts. So if you were here when I preached Jeremiah, we talked about the timeline. Then when I gave you some just some random facts. And then we got into the story. So here's some random facts. Uh, some families chose to remain in exile. So Cyrus let people go, and he kind of was just like, do you want to go? Go back. But some people had already formed communities in Persia and in other parts of the world, and they were just going to stay there. Because, you know, can you imagine, you already have your grandchildren, all they've ever known is this, this country or whatever. Some people give them a bad rap when you look up the commentaries and stuff, but I'm like, come on, <laughs> be human. So anyway, some families chose to remain in exile. Esther's, Esther's Jewish name was Hadassah, which means myrtle. You know what a myrtle is? Is it a flower? I don't even know. But I just thought Myrtle. I thought that was a fun name. Esther was an orphan raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. So some people say Mordecai was her uncle, but he was not. Mordecai was her cousin, but he was quite older than her from what they understand. The official author of the book of Esther is unknown. It could have been Mordecai, they think. It could have been someone who put together some, some of the um, different things that were recorded during that time, and then they put the book together so that they could remember what had happened because it was an epic story. Okay, but they don't know who the official author is. And that's pretty normal. Uh, that happens a couple of different times in the Bible. Hebrews is like that, if you, if you were wondering. Um, Paul, some people say Paul wrote it, but then some people say, no, that's not Paul's style. And, you know, so whatever. But that happens sometimes in the Bible. We don't really know who the author was. The book of Esther was originally compiled and put together, they believe, so that the Jewish people would remember to celebrate the Feast of Purim, which I'm probably saying wrong. Then someone could tell me, Rob, you probably know how to say it right. Is that right? Oh, come on. Okay, the Feast of Purim. During the Feast of Purim, so this is actually something that still happens today, they open up the book of Esther and they read it while they're celebrating, okay, the Jewish families. And this year it was on March 12, 2017, so you missed out on celebrating the Feast of Purim. Ooh, this is my favorite. Well, not really, Lord, but never mind. The movie 300. Who's seen it? Yes, my boy Leonidas, okay, he's, um, anyway, he's got his 300 men, they're fighting, whatever, this movie is, is around the same time, so the king of Persia that Leonidas and his 300 boys were fighting is probably what they, from what we understand, Esther's husband, okay, so watch it again and think of it that way, okay, I just want you to do that. Is that okay to say, Dad? Okay, the first one and a half chapters of the book of Esther, I'm just trying to warn you in case you decide to dive into this, read something like The Bachelor. Who watches The Bachelor? Don't raise your hand. Okay, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <coughs> no judgment here. But that's what the first one and a half chapters kind of, kind of reads like. The book of Esther ends, you want me to tell you the end? Just kidding, I'm not gonna tell you. 
The other characters in the story beside Esther, I've said some of them, the king Xerxes, Queen Vashti, who will be in there for just a short time, poor Vashti, uh, Mordecai, her, her cousin, who was more like her stepdad, okay? He works for the king, so he works for the king. And then there's a guy named Haman that's gonna come on the scene. He's evil, he's proud, he's manipulative, and he's an Agagite, um, and he also works for the king. Okay, so these are some of the other names you're going to hear as we go through. So Esther's story begins with a six-month party. Can you imagine that? Six, no, Mr. Alvin, come on. Come on. You know Six months straight of nothing but a party. He invites all the nobles and the princes from all over the province of Persia, which basically is everything. Persia is everything at this point. The only people who are holding on to their territory are the Grecians, which is very interesting because they have this little bitty piece of the world and everybody else is in the Persian Empire all the way to India. So he calls for this huge feast. He lets all these princes and nobles come. For six months straight, they have a party. It's, I'm not making it up. Um, let's read about it. Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1, starting with verse 1. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. I was not kidding. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal phone, throne <laughs> at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. So this is a lot of people. The celebration lasted 180 days. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. So Susa was the capital at this time. Um, it lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace. So he gives a six-month party for just a select group of people, and then he throws a seven-day party for everybody from the least to the greatest, anybody who lived in Susa. So this is like the whole city of Bossier having one big party for seven days. Who would like that? Not me. Uh, verses 8 through 12, I'd be tired. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking. For the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. Can you imagine that? Okay, at the same time, so he's having this big party for all the men, and he's like, give him every, get, oh, they want more wine, give them more wine. They want more beer, give them more beer. He's like, let them drink as much as they want. I cannot imagine what this party looked like. I don't want to know. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was high in spirits or drunk as a skunk because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him, and I'm not going to say all their names because, man, uh, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men, oh, this sounds like a man, oh, sorry, did I say that out loud? To gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's orders to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. Come on now. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. 
Now, I used to give Queen Vashti a bad rap. I'm going to tell you, until this week. Oh, I'm a mean person. I was like, ooh, she should have known better. You know, I'm rolling my neck and everything. And poor Queen Vashti. And then I thought, I reread it, and I was like, oh, he was drunk. And all his friends were drunk. And he's like, go get Vashti. Tell her to come on in here and show everybody how good she is. I mean, come on. I would have done the same thing. I wish Dale. No, I'm kidding. I ain't gonna... No, Dale would never do that. I love you, Dale. But, I mean, I would have been like, no, I'm not coming either. I never thought about it till this week. I was like, poor Vashti. She's given her own party, okay? And then they call for her and say, I need you to put your crown on and come show everybody how beautiful you are. And then I'm sure she's like, I wonder what these women are going to think. I wonder how they're going to feel. I mean, who knows what she's thinking? The king is drunk, and so are his advisors. His advisors immediately think not only of the king, but also of themselves. Esther 1, 15 through 20. You know the law, the king said. So he turns to his advisors and says, what, do you, what should I do? She hasn't obeyed my command. The officials told her what I ordered her to do, didn't they? Then Mimukin gave a reply to the king and the nobles, and he said, Queen Vashti has done what is wrong, but she didn't do it to only against you, King Xerxes. Oh, my. She did it also against all the nobles, and she did it against the people and all the territories you rule over. I love this. All the women will hear about what the queen has done. They're scared to death. Then they won't respect their husbands. They'll say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. No, not like that. King Xerxes commanded. I, I can't get that voice out of my head. Because you, you, you know what they're saying, right? If she didn't come, you know my wife's going to be like, uh, Queen Vashti didn't come. You better get your own uh, whatever, you know. You know that was going to happen. And these dudes were scared to death. They weren't even really, I don't think they were even thinking about the king. They were thinking about themselves. So, like, you got to do something because all of our women are going to lose their minds, okay? So, here we go. Verse 19. So, if it pleases you, send out a royal order. Gosh, they went far. Let it be written down in the laws of Persia and Media. Those laws can never be changed. Let the royal order say that Vashti can never see you again. Also, let her position as queen be given to someone who is better than she is. These dudes are malicious. And let your order be announced all through your entire kingdom. Then, this is what they really were about. Then all women will have respect for their husbands from the least important to the most important. So they weren't really worried about the king. And I had never really paid attention to that until this week. They were, they were really worried about themselves. And so begins the Bachelor Persia edition. From this moment on, they go out and they just start pulling in beautiful young virgins to be a part of this process of finding the most beautiful, finding the most fair, whatever. But this is not a fairy tale. This is messed up, really. So they, they find all these beautiful women, and Esther happens to be one of them, okay? And they give them 12 months of beauty treatments. Now, that's pretty cool. They give them 12, I don't know, 12 months of beauty treatments. They give them the, the best cologne and, and makeup, and it, it describes all of this stuff, lotions, and they put them through all of this stuff for, for a whole year, okay? And so the book of Esther is an amazing story. And I'm going to leave some parts of it out on purpose because I really want you to read it for yourself. Because I had read it before, but rereading it, it's really opened my eyes to some things. 
And if you were here when I did Jeremiah, what I did was we talked about some of the major themes that, that were traveling through this book that, that scholars can agree upon, that they all say, man, this book really shows us this. And one of those themes is God's divine providence. God's divine providence. Man, when you read it, it's all over it. God's divine providence, what does that mean? Because we say a lot of things from, from this stage, and you're like, what does that mean? I do that. I'm always like, what does that mean? So this is what divine providence means, because you've probably heard that before. It just simply means God's direct guidance or care for his people. In the story of Esther, God is the director. Make no mistake. And he's calling all the shots. But some people say, and there's, oh man, when you start studying things and you start seeing what all the different theologians say, your mind is races, that, that, that maybe they just were coincidences. And so when one of the, the study Bibles that I have, they were like, it's, it's kind of like funny. It was like a sarcastic comment in the Bible. They were like, coincidences, question mark. Like, is this, these aren't coincidences. And it laid out seven different things that happened. And they were like, is this really a coincidence or is this God? So that's what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to let you be the judge. So I'm going to read them to you. And at the end, I'm going to ask you, do you think this is a coincidence or divine providence? But you don't have to answer out loud unless you want to. Number one, <laughs> Esther 2, verse 17 and 18. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, he called it Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with loyal liberality. Esther wins the queendom above every other virgin in all of the province, she is the one that's picked. And she just so happens to be Jewish. Now, nobody knows this yet because her uncles told her, don't tell anybody yet. And I love it because I feel like God was in that too. She's the most beautiful one and she's most favored out of all the other women. Do you think that's a coincidence? Or do you think that's providence? Number two. Esther 2, 21 through 23. One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, because her, her cousin worked for the king, two of the king's units, eunuchs, Big Thana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. So these guys are guards like outside of the king's house, if you will, and they're talking about how they're going to kill the king. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole or impaled. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. Do you know what it means to be impaled on a pole? I should have put a picture up there, but I won't. You Google it for you. It is not okay. Oh, it is scary. Mordecai saves the king's life, and it gets written down. He just so happened to be in the right place at the right time, and his ears are wide open. Is that a coincidence, or is that providence? What do you think? Number three, Esther 5, 1 and 2. On the third day of the fast, Esther had called a fast because... 
Haman, that guy I mentioned before, he's mad at Mordecai because Mordecai doesn't bow to him. I'm not going to tell you all the story because I want you to read it. And so from the day, the Bible says, from the day that Mordecai does not give him honor, he decides he wants to kill him and all of the Jews. Good Lord, he went, he went far. So Mordecai comes to Esther and he's like, I need you to pray. I need you to fast. I need you to go before the king and ask for for help and she's scared and she at first she says no but then she says okay and she gets her all of her handmaidens to fast and he gets all the Jews to fast so on the third day of the fast just wanted to catch you up Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace she's not supposed to do this but she does it anyway just across from the king's hall the king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court he welcomed her and held out the gold scepter to her so Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Esther should have died for coming into the king's presence unannounced. But Esther's life is spared. Is that a coincidence or providence? What do you think? Number four, Esther 6, 1 through 3. That night, the king couldn't sleep. He ordered the record book, the day-by-day -day journal of events, to be brought and read to him. They wrote down everything that, that happened day by day. They came across the story there about the time that Mordecai had exposed the plot to Bithynia and Teresh, the two royal eunuchs who guarded the entrance and who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. The king asked, what great honor was given to Mordecai for this? Nothing, replied the king's servants who were in attendance. Nothing has been done for him. The king has a sleepless night and asks them to read him a bedtime story. It just so happens that they read to him about the day Mordecai saved his life. Do you think that's coincidence or providence? Ooh, I feel like we're playing a game. I don't know. I like it. Number five, Esther 6, starting with verse 4. So this is the same night. Who is that in the inner court? He hears somebody outside, the king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he had prepared. <laughs> so Haman hates Mordecai so much that he goes home and he talks to his wife and his family about it. And they're like, you should do this. and you should." I could just see them. It's, sorry, Dad. Sorry. I'm going to be normal. Are you, I see your face. Anyway, I just see them conspiring, and I always have some song going in my head, but I'm not going to do the theme song, Dale. I'm sorry. And so they're talking, and they say, let's impale him on a pole. So the Bible says that Mordecai, and Mordecai, excuse me, Haman has all of these poles made, okay? And, and I'll tell you what happens with those poles later. But anyway, um, and so he's already got the poles in place. He's ready to, for the king just to say, yeah, you can kill him. You can kill Mordecai, and you can kill all the Jews. That's what he thinks is going to happen. Actually, that has already happened, but, oh, gosh, I can't tell you this story. I want you to read it for yourself. Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he had prepared. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman's out in the court. And the king says, bring him in, because he trusts him, and he's one of his guys. So Haman came in, and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? And Haman thought he was talking about him. <laughs> so Haman thought to himself, 
who would the king wish to honor more than me? Wow. So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with the royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes, and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the official shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. And then Haman says, I like that idea. Go get all that stuff together and go get Mordecai. Ha <laughs> I love that. Sorry. I even wrote down here, LOL. Oh, Haman thought God was, oh God. Haman thought the king was talking about him. I love it. Haman walks in on what he thought was just the right time to get the honor he felt he was due. But instead, he ended up having to honor the man that he wanted to have killed. Now, is that a coincidence or is that providence? Number six, Esther 7, 8. The king raging left his wine, ooh, I'll catch you up in a minute, and stalked out into the palace garden. Haman stood there pleading with Queen Esther for his life. He could see that the king was finished with him, ooh, and that he was doomed. As the king came back from the palace garden into the banquet hall, Haman was groveling at the couch on which Esther reclined. The king roared out, will he even molest the queen while I'm just around the corner? When that word left the king's mouth, all the blood drained from Haman's face. Uh-oh. One version says they put something over his head, and as soon as they did that, Haman knew he was dying. <laughs> Sorry. It's kind of funny. So Esther calls for a meeting with the king, two meetings. She comes before him unannounced, and that's what she's coming to say. Can you come to a feast? I want to prepare for you. Da, 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 da. And she invites Haman. And at the second feast, she says... There's a man who wants to kill my family. She, re she reveals herself. I'm a Jew, and there's somebody who wants to destroy all of us. And, and this is the guy, the guy who's sitting right here eating with us. And the king gets so mad that he gets up and he walks away. And when he comes back, Haman's on the couch begging for his life. Well, the king doesn't know what he's doing, so he gets mad. The king walks back in at just the right time and catches his boy, Haman, Haman, why did I write that, groveling. Is that a coincidence or is that providence? What do you think? And then the Bible tells us that Haman and his whole family is impaled on the poles that he had prepared. Mm. Coincidence? Providence? I don't know. Esther 10, 2, 3, I'm skipping a big chunk of the story because I want you to read it for yourself. All the king's powerful and mighty acts are written down. That includes the whole story of how important Mordecai was. Wow. The king had given him a position of great honor. All these things are written in the official records of the kings of Media and Persia. The position of Mordecai the Jew was second only to the position of King Xerxes. Wow. Mordecai was the most important Jew. All the other Jews had the highest respect for him. That's because he worked for the good of his people, and he spoke up for the benefit of all the Jews. Haman was supposed to be getting exalted to second in command. But at the end of the story, Mordecai becomes the king's right-hand man. Do you think that that is a coincidence, or do you think that's providence? I think it's probably providence. 
And this is the part that drives me the most crazy, and my, my, me and my dad were talking about it yesterday. When you start to study the Bible, you're going to run into a bunch of commentaries. You're going to run into a bunch of, well, this person thinks this, and this person thinks this, and this person thinks this. And the book of Esther is one of the most debated books theologically because some people take offense to the fact that God is not mentioned by name in the book of Esther. They talk about it. They've, they've got whole commentaries on it. And I remember the first time I heard that. I remember I was a young Christian, and I thought, well, that is a good question. I mean, I don't like those worship songs that don't have God in them either, and I don't like that. You know, just your mind starts racing, and I'm like, well, what does that mean, or whatever. And then as I was studying it this week, I found someone's notes, and I just loved what they put. They put, the hiddenness of God is not the absence of God. God is obviously the author of this story. Obviously. He is plainly seen on every single page. And if we're not careful, we can think God is absent from our story. But he's most often right there in plain view. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are our eyes truly open? Because when we don't see what we want to see, we assume God's not there. But that doesn't mean he's not there. For a blood-bought son and daughter of God, he is there on every single page of the story of our lives. You can take that to the bank. He's there. The second theme, and I won't stay on this long, and I love this. Oh, my gosh. I was like, whoa, when I found it. Human responsibility. God's divine providence and human responsibility. No doubt, God is the director of this story. His divine providence is in play. But Mordecai and Esther had a part to play too. And they had to be willing to play the part. See, Haman, the plan he had put in motion, the king had already signed the decree. On a certain day in a certain month, and you'll read about that when you read it, every Jew in Persia was going to be killed. It would have been the Holocaust on steroids, and in a way we can't even imagine, because Persia was the empire, and the Jews were spread out everywhere, and Haman had got the king to sign a decree to say to kill them all, and he said yes, and this is what was at stake here. This is why Esther and Mordecai are doing all of this stuff. This is why she's fasting, this is why he's, he's asking her to, to put her life on the line. Because all of the Jewish nation is at stake here. Now, God's divine providence was in play, but he used Mordecai and Esther to play their part. They had to step into their roles and do what was needed to help bring about the salvation of God's people. God is always going to play his part. That is never the question. The question is always, will we play our part? God is always going to be working. Always. It never ends. He set his story in motion before the garden, and it's going to carry out to the very end. He is always working. But the question is, are we working with him? Philippians 2, 12 through 13 
So then, my dearest friends, as you have always followed my advice, and that not only when I was present to give it, so now that I am far away, this is Paul writing to the church of Philippi, be keener than ever to work out the salvation that God has given you with the proper sense of awe and responsibility. For it is God who is at work within you giving you the will and the power to achieve his purpose. Work out the salvation God has given. Salvation is free. He gives it to us. We have it. No one can take it away. But what we do with it, how we live it out, that's up to us. Work out the salvation God has given you with the proper sense of awe. Wow. <laughs> I once was dead and now I'm alive. I once was lost and now I'm found. Once was blind and now I'm seeing. Wow. That's all. Don't ever lose the all. Walk with him for 50 years, but don't ever lose the all. Because when you lose the all, you can start thinking that it's all about you. You can forget that he's the one who did all of the work in the first place to get you where you are. Don't lose the awe. But with the awe, there comes a responsibility. For it is God who is at work within you, giving you the will and the power to achieve his purpose. God works, God gives, but we work with what God gives. He gives us the will and the power. So you mean there's no excuses? Not really, not legitimately, no. Because he's already saved us, and now he goes on top of that. He gives us the will and the power to do everything he's ever asked us to do. Human responsibility. Sometimes our human responsibility looks like fasting. Yeah. That's what Esther and her people did. She was about to put her life on the line. They didn't eat. They put on ashes. One virgin says she put dung on her head. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not doing that. Um, but, yeah, they went, they went hard. Praying. Human responsibility looks like praying. Well, what if God already knows everything? Why do I have to talk? Because you've got to play your part. Sometimes it looks like staying. Staying right where you are knowing that if we do it God's way, he's going to save the day. Sometimes it looks like fighting, fighting spiritually. In the book of Esther, they had to fight physically. The king could not undo a decree that he had made. This is the scariest thing in the world. So he said, I can't undo it because my seal's on it already, but I can do this. I can tell all the Jews, you have the right to fight for yourself and your property. Which, I, I, I don't know, I'll get emotional talking about it. I can just see them. He's the king. Why can't he just tear the thing up? He can't. We do that with God. He's the king. Why can't he just make my husband love me? What do I do? What's all this respect stuff I have to do? You're t I don't want to do that, God. Can't you just make him? No. You have to play your part. You have to play your part. They fought. 
tooth and nail, and they won. <laughs> but we fight with prayer, and we fight with the word, and we fight with love. We disarm our enemies by treating them like friends. That's how we fight, trusting. Sometimes our human responsibility just looks like trusting. Even when it hurts, even if it doesn't turn out the way I thought, God, I trust you. Sometimes it looks like going places we never dreamed, doing things we never wanted to do. But it always look like, looks like playing. Playing our part in God's grand story and in our stories individually. A synonym of the word playing is participating. Participating. God is playing his part. He will always play his part. He is I am. So he will do. And I don't have to worry about that. But will I participate with I am? That's up to me. Listen to some scriptures you've heard and ask yourself, what part do we play? Philippians 4, 6, you've heard this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Who, who's the burden on there? Do not be anxious about anything, but everything, with Hmm. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So God did his part. He gave you the Holy Spirit. Within you whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What part do we play? God works. God gives. We work with what God gives. We have a responsibility. We have a part to play in the story of our lives. Mordecai and Esther didn't get to read the full and completed work of the book of Esther or the Bible like we do, so we see the big picture. They didn't get to see it from our perspective. While they were going through it, they probably thought it was a mess. Can you imagine? But when we read it, we see all the miracles. Do we see the miracles in our lives? I went to Pastor Darrell Tuberville's funeral today, and if you knew him, you knew, you know what that means. I, I didn't even think I could do this tonight because I was so, I couldn't get over it. About 58 months ago, he was diagnosed with cancer. And from his diagnosis on, he said, no longer am I just living, now I'm living the miracle. This man is amazing. He even wrote a book about it. And no one saw this coming. We are all beside ourselves. But every time someone asked him how he was doing, do you know what he said for the last 58 months? I'm just living the miracle. <laughs> what? What? And I complain that my car won't cool down fast enough. He's living the miracle? He's got colon cancer, rectal cancer. It's moved to his brain. He's living the miracle? 
But he said it gave him a new perspective. What looked like a mess began to look like a miracle. I have a house to clean up. That's the miracle. I have a yard to mow. That's the miracle. I have working legs. That's the miracle. Perspective is everything. And so many of us are calling our miracles mess. And we've got to be careful. Their miracles were written in a book, and so are all of ours. Psalm 139, 16 and 17. You saw me before I was born. This is David writing. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. Every day of my life was written in your book. Whose book? God's book. God's book. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're publishing, they're authoring, they're fine-tuning this story. And we are a part of it. God in all the fullness of the Trinity is working together to write the story of our lives. But we, we have to keep getting up and putting one foot in front of the other. Doing what he's asked us to do. Living out the directives. Walking by faith and not by physical sight. We have a part to play. We have a responsibility. God will always play his part, but we have a choice. Will we play our part? Stand with me. God's name was never mentioned in the book of Esther, but he was all over the story. And I hope you read it, and I hope you see it for yourself. And in the story of our lives, God is always there. He's the good father, if you want to know who he is. And we're supposed to be the obedient children. Mm. It's a good story if we'll play our part. The obedient children just keep trusting even when they feel like giving up. They keep hoping against hope. They never stop believing in the face of disaster and adversity, and they keep on playing their part even when they feel like running and hiding. God is never absent from his children's story. He is always there. But what you do is up to you. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me, please? The time has come for us to stop calling our miracles messes or, or even coincidences and start calling them divine providence. God is in it. He is with us. Romans 8, 28 says, all things, they might not be good, but I'm going to tell you something. We serve a God who make, can make them good. He can make them all work together for his purpose. 
You sleeping through the night is not a coincidence. You being looked over for that position is not a coincidence. God knows what's best. You being at the intersection four minutes before the accident is not a coincidence. Your friend texting you a word of encouragement isn't a coincidence. You living in the United States of America at this time in this climate is not a coincidence. You having your giftings and your abilities is not a coincidence. And it's sure not a mess. Because God made you. And if you're a believer, he recreated you. And he's got a plan for your life. But I really believe this, and I want you to to, to just keep your eyes closed for a little longer, because I want to know, how many of you have felt like God is absent from your story recently? You have found yourself asking God, where are you? This isn't how it was supposed to be. I remember when you were this, and I remember this, but, but where are you right now, God? I feel like some of you have been asking God that. If you've been asking God that, would you just raise your hand just so I can see it? Amen. Mm. You can put your hand down. God is not absent from your story. He is the author and he is the finisher. And he will be with you even to the end. We sang two of my favorite songs tonight, and I don't think that was a coincidence because he's faithful to the end. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to go. Father, I thank you that you are always, always, always there. Tonight, we all stand on your truth where you said that you would never leave, no, never forsake any of your children. We believe that tonight, God. Would you just, would you just say that with me? I believe that, God. I believe that. Amen. Now, God, we also acknowledge that we have a part to play. You've given us your spirit. You've given us abilities. You've given us energy. You've given us a financial provision. You just keep giving and giving and giving. And God, we acknowledge that we have a part to play. With our eyes closed, if you would say, I just really know that I have been just kind of checking out and I haven't been playing my part. God's been asking me to do some things and I've just kind of been numbing out and doing my own thing. Would you raise your hand so I can see it? Oh my God, put your hands down, amen. Repeat this prayer after me, everyone. God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. For by your spirit, I can do all things. I will not run. I will not hide. I will play my part. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are awesome. I love you. I love you. I love you.